All right. Welcome to another episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. We have Ben Burgess. He's a columnist for Jacobin Magazine, an adjunct philosophy professor at Rutgers University, an online instructor at the School for Social and Cultural Change, and the host of the podcast and YouTube show, Give Them an Argument. He's the author of several books, including Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left, and his newest book, Christopher Hitchens, What He Got Right, How He Went Wrong, and Why He Still Matters. Welcome, Ben. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, man. And so something that we've been talking about, and obviously something I already shared with Ben is this book is legit one of my favorite books in the past probably three to four years. Mm -hmm. So not only not only because of how much I love Christopher Hitchens, but also just because of the fact of how nuanced it is. So I want to first read a quote and a passage from it. And then kind of, you know, we're going to start talking about what he thought about Mm -hmm. him. All right. So Ben writes, regardless of which hitch we ended up with, I suspect that if the cancer had gone into remission for a decade, and he died yesterday, I would have ended up having the same mixed feelings about him that I had in 2011. I hated parts of his work and loved most of the rest. He was always worth reading and watching, and he was always worth thinking about and arguing with in your head. That's very far from being a nothing. Christopher Hitchens spent years writing for Slate. Can you remember reading anything at Slate in 2019 or 2020 or 2021 that made you think? How about Salon? How about the Daily Beast? Can you remember anything you read in any of these places that made you grumble? Damn, that's really good even though you disagreed with the author's conclusion. Hell, could you remember a single turn of phrase from anything you read in any of these places more than a week ago? So that's perfect, man. That literally captures how amazing of a thinker he was. It's like, yeah, just like, wow, man, just like thinking about it. And, you know, because so many of us disagree with later Hitch, but it's sort of, I mean, it matters and it doesn't matter because he still gave you these ideas that at the very least, you know, made you a little bit kind of despise him, right? And it made <laughs> you think like, here's why it's kind of worth my time to try to figure out why he's wrong and try to disagree with him. But before we really get into kind of why he's wrong and obviously, you know, later mm-hmm. Hitch and how that came about, can you tell us a bit about how he rose to prominence and how he even became important in the first place? Sure. Um you know, it's funny that quote that you just read uh, a couple of months ago, uh, Anthony Fisher, who just took over as the opinion editor at the Daily Beast, invited me to write some articles for them. And like, I've, I've never, I haven't actually asked him, but I've always really wanted to know whether like he, he read that or not, right? You know, that, because, uh, um, you know, that, that, I, that I just insulted them in the, uh, in, in the, uh, in the book. Uh, um, but uh but in any case um maybe he read that maybe he didn't but uh but I, I would i would stand by that although at least he he'll uh he'll took he'll took over very recently there so you know the, uh, the we can say it. that we can say that about most publications if you think about no, it no, i mean yeah 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 I, I mean i was just kind of picking like a, a few sort of places that are in the same kind of lane as like what uh something like slate is right you know that they mm-hmm. are that kind of um you know, liberalish sort of online commentary speaking to a broadly similar audience. And it's, it's very, um, and yeah, I, I think it is like really striking how different, like, you know, if, if you, if you go back and read, like, not that it's necessarily my, my favorite of his work or anything, but like, if you go back and read some of the stuff that uh, Hitchens wrote for Slate, it is really, really hard to imagine that. Uh, you know, now, I mean, like, there's, there's something really striking about the idea that you'd just be, like, kind of clicking around some publication like that, and, and you'd run into one of these Hitchens essays, like, even the one, you know, he wrote this essay pretty late, like, like late 2000s about um, the way 
that the British Empire uh, bequeathed the phrase "fuck off" to uh, much of the uh, developing world. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's that that like that like introducing that to people's vocabulary, uh, you know, is said uh, along with uh, you know along with cricket, you know, one of one of the most one of the most enduring legacies of it. And it's like this very funny essay. It's very like historically informed. It's it's like really subtly brought out, and then there's this like kind of point at the end about how um basically the united states can't stay in iraq for that much longer it's going to be really bad and, you know that's um that he's he's making in this really subtle funny way at the end through through this and i just have a hard time imagining like i mean whatever i mean and i'll, I'll include myself in the criticism right i mean i don't write anything that good you know <laughs> they have a uh, uh so i i think um yeah, I think some of that does probably come out of this kind of unique background, which gets to what you were just asking about. So uh, Hitchens had uh, in the 70s, uh, he was a writer for this left-wing uh, British uh, magazine, uh, much more left-wing back then, uh, the, uh, the New Statesman, um, where he worked with people like Martin Amis and Julian Barnes, uh, the novelist. Uh, and... Um, and then in the uh, in the early '80s, uh, he uh, like at the beginning of the '80s, he went to the United States first for this like kind of one year I think um, exchange program that the New Statesman was having with uh, the Nation of the United States. You know where like somebody from from somebody from the New Statesman would go work for a year for the the Nation, and I think still have the New Statesman pay their salary, and uh, and somebody from the Nation you know went over to. Uh, Great Britain and uh, and worked for the New Statesman for a year, but then Hitchens decided that he liked it and he wanted to stay. Um, and interestingly enough, uh, Victor Devasky is the uh, uh, was the longtime publisher of the Nation. Uh, he wrote this thing after Hitchens died, where he mentioned when they were first trying to figure out um, like what he would do with the Nation, right? You know, like like they definitely wanted to like keep him, right? You know, when he said he wanted to just like move there and stay there. But like what he would do, and one of the initial ideas was that he was going to write this column about Wall Street, which I think is this wonderful little what if, because because uh, I, I think that probably would have been an amazing column. And I think if he'd been sort of grounded in um, sort of writing about the depravities of Wall Street every week, you know, that that might have been, uh, you know, I mean, you have to wonder if his politics would have evolved in the same way that they did uh, later on, because, of course, that wasn't his main beat, right? What he was really doing with his column, you know, the Minority Report at the Nation, mm. was, you know, I mean, he'd talk about a variety of different subjects, and and you know, I think sometimes people overestimate the degree to which he wasn't really that interested in domestic policy. He was very passionate about the death penalty, for example, uh, and other subjects, but like most of what he was talking about most of the time was foreign policy, mm-hmm. and uh, in particular, and I think this could be important for understanding what happened to him later like a lot of what he was really interested in was stuff like in the eighties with stuff like the, um, you know, the Reagan administration support for these like dirty wars in Latin America, you know, it's kind of death squad, uh, right wing dictatorships. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's a lot of what he was very focused on and going into the nineties, the you know, like he, he writes, uh, and this is when he's just starting to become a little bit bigger. And although it's, it's always interesting because I think he did just because maybe the nation is like just prominent enough of a magazine uh, and just because Hitchens himself had like such a big personality and was so charming and all that stuff. Like he did have a little bit of an outsized presence, even in, even in the, you know, even in the eighties and early nineties. Uh, so 
you know, he's like on C-SPAN all the time, which leads to some really funny things because this is back when he still very much considers himself to be a socialist. So like you, you get these hilarious clips on C-SPAN where like some, you know, little lady in Kansas will like call up to complain about the guest. And she's like, I don't like this Christopher Hitchens. You know, he's, he, he's too much of a liberal. And he's like, madame you have insulted me more than you could know (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's hilarious that's so big uh but then like in the 90s i think you know when he and this is when he sort of started to become a little bit bigger he uh especially at the end of the 90s uh he writes this this sort of trilogy of hate books uh about Mm -hmm. about these figures that he particularly despises uh so uh, the one that like is most sort of consistent with his interests up until that point is Henry Kissinger. That's mm-hmm. you know pretty straightforward. You know people can kind of understand uh, how that one goes, um, which is actually the last of the three books in this sort of trilogy. Uh, one of them is about uh, Bill Clinton, which at the time was a much edgier thing. I think now anybody with like broadly leftist views like can like look back at Bill Clinton and be like, oh yeah, that guy really sucked. But mm-hmm. I think at the time, a lot of people in a sort of progressive-ish sphere were very defensive of the Clintons because, you know, they, you know, like the kind of shape of the culture war at the time was, you know, Newt Gingrich or Rush Limbaugh would be attacking them all the time and they would sort of feel defensive of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Hitchens wrote this like absolutely savage book attacking, uh, attacking mostly Bill Clinton, to some extent Hillary Clinton too, uh, no one left to lie to. And a lot of that, again, is about stuff like, you know, the death penalty uh, and uh, Bill Clinton as governor, you know, um, not personally presided over the execution to score tough on crime points during the 1992 election. Um, Mm. uh, Billy Ray Rector, who's this profoundly mentally disabled uh, black man in Arkansas uh, and like who, you know, allegedly asked for some of his last meal to be saved for later, you know, because he, he just didn't understand what was happening to him. A lot of it's about welfare reform and the kind of Dickensian horrors of that. Uh, and so again, I think that what it was looking back at, a lot of people could be like, okay, you know, fair enough, right? You know, Henry Kissinger, Bill Clinton, like anybody you could see with sort of broadly left-wing values, you could see why they would hate them. Mm-hmm. But then the one that I think I think even now, like a lot of people, when they first hear about, they're like, wait, what? Uh, is Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. It's like, it's so it's so counterintuitive just based on their culture. So actually, I don't know about this. So yeah. what did he have to say about Mother Teresa? <laughs> okay. Yeah. So uh, so Mother Teresa, uh, he uh, he wrote a book about, and you know, whatever else you want to say about Christopher Hitchens, he had a flair for titles. He, uh, he the, the name of the book is The Missionary Position, Mother Teresa in Theory and Practice. And it's actually really interesting because in the 2000s, so much of Hitchens' emphasis would be on uh, militant atheism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and, you know, that's, that wasn't a new position that he suddenly started taking in the 2000s. I mean, there are things that you could find throughout his career where he, he says things very much like what he would say, like in 2008 and in, uh, 2007 and God is not great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, like there are essays from like the early 80s where he says stuff like that. And I, I talked to his brother, uh, Peter Hitchens, who, who told me that he thought that was like Christopher's most consistent position. He, he estimated from the age of about 11 uh onward uh but um but 
given that, it is really striking how even though this is a position he held throughout his life, it wasn't something that he emphasized that much until the last years. And even in this Mother Teresa book in the late 90s, uh, he's, it's not really a particularly anti-religious or even really anti-Catholic book. Uh, there's, you know, there are, there's like a poor, there's like a part of it where he's debunking this like alleged miracle that happened at the, you know, House of the Dying in Calcutta. That's like a little bit of a, of a um, preview of, of later Hitchens. But for the most part, that's not really where his emphasis is. His emphasis is on stuff like Mother Teresa lending her aura of moral credibility to like these just awful, you know, regimes like the Duvalier dictatorship in Haiti uh, and like, you know, palling around with, with these, these third world dictators and, um, and making, you know, making excuse, you know, saying they were great friends of the poor uh, and also, you know, taking, uh, you know, taking all of this money that um, people donated, you know, to be fair, she never exactly lied about this, but like, you know, I think people uh, presumably, right, were under the impression that, you know, in a great many cases that what their money would go to would be to be like helping, you know, dying people, at, you know, at, at, at like this, um, uh, you know, at, at the House of the Dying in Calcutta uh, and other places like that, that, you know, she had in various other parts of the world, uh, when really, um, most of that seemed to be going to religious missionary work and at and 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 in her actual you know work uh, you know with 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 dying people she she didn't um, I mean like this gets really ghoulish I mean like she didn't um, she didn't actually like you know blow any of the money on like uh, anesthetics right you know because because uh, she actually seems to have had this view that like suffering you know brings you closer to God and you know and it's, and so it, it, it's like pretty grim stuff. Like, I, I actually think, um, you know, I, I think the, the quote that was read earlier, you know, gives people some flavor, you know, I'm, I'm very, you know, I, I think there are like lots of really important things that Hitchens got wrong, but I mean, I, I actually don't think this is one of them. I, th I think, I think he makes his case pretty thoroughly, you know, that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, that Mother Teresa, you know, is, is somebody who, I mean, is unfortunately kind of unsuccessful that, you know, he's, he's uh, like, I think now to most people, like, unless they're really specifically familiar with this, Right. Um, like you say, Mother Teresa, you know, like this sort of immediate connotation is like, you know, saintliness and compassion and all that yeah. stuff. But I think yeah. it makes a really good case that that's not at all how we should be remembering her. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like when you think about her, I mean, I guess it's pretty much we idealize her because in our culture, she's like, you know, sort of the top of the heap in terms of humanity. When we think of the people who we aspire to be, it's like Christ and then it's Mother Teresa. So here's this guy, right? This sort of this kind of revolutionary figure who says, no, 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 you guys fucked this all up. You got this all wrong. She's actually a terrible human being. So that's what I love so much about Hitch, that he was able to kind of take these, uh, I guess, kind of more mainstream perspectives and show the kind of nuance of them, which obviously is indicated in your book about him. Yeah, like even uh, Bill Clinton, for instance, right? I mean, me growing up in the 90s, especially before social media, before people were a little more well-informed about what you know, the story is with the Clintons. Right. Uh, essentially, the, the image that uh, I had of him was, okay, the economy was doing pretty well during him. And yeah, he had that thing with Monica Lewinsky and there were jokes and, but he seemed like an okay president. And, you know, and that's just like, I'm just saying that was my, you know, sure. thing I mean, it's, it's, it's like, it's like approximately equivalent to if you're around, sort of consensus liberalism 
there's like all the stuff about how like Barack Obama's like, you know, his biggest scandal was that he wore a tan suit once, right? Mm-hmm. You know, people, people will say things like that, you know, it's like, and, uh, uh, you know, create all these jobs, this and that, you know. And, and, and you there's know, Syria and drones and. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. It's like, it's like, well, yeah. what about all that? Right. You know, mm-hmm. and, and yeah. so it's, it's sort of the, the rough equivalent where it's like, yeah, that they, the sort of um, the, the kind of, you know, like even the, um, even like if you think about like the West Wing, you know, that TV show that the, that, that was very transparently supposed to be this sort of like idealized, cleaned up, you know, version of the Clinton administration. Mm-hmm. But like really the only difference, particularly other than the fact that it seemed to be more like, you know, um, like they're, I mean, really the only difference between you know the Bartlett administration and the West Wing and the Clinton administration in the real world is that like Jed Bartlett was a good family man who wasn't fucking around. I mean like that 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 seems to be about it, right? So like mm-hmm. I guess that's the only complaint that you have about Bill Clinton, not like the fact that as a as a Democratic president, you know he he oversaw the uh, you know he oversaw the destruction of the um, the federal welfare system uh, that you know that, that was that was put in place you know under the New Deal. Uh, that you know that he that he you know got through all these free trade agreements that uh, that just that just ravaged uh, the um, you know the the sort of bargaining power of like big industrial unions and, and and you know had and had like devastating effects on parts of the country like the one where I'm from that he uh, that um, you know that he had. Um, you know that he put he put through the you know was it the uh, the. Uh, anti-terrorism and effective death penalty act in, uh, in 1996 which is exactly what it sounds like uh and you know etc 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 right you know but i mean i think it's really a a sign like the way that like um the way that like whoever's president who's a who's a democrat like and i don't i don't know what the story like this is gonna be about biden you know but like whoever's president who's a democrat if you're around certain kinds of you know like kind of normally liberal uh, spaces that you know that you just like basically remember it's like oh that was like totally fine and like you know whatever maybe it's like a little bit imperfect around the edges whereas I think for a variety of reasons one thing that Hitchens could add to this is this is this outside perspective for a couple reasons right I mean one uh, that I mean one most obviously um, that he you know that he wasn't you know he wasn't an American, or I mean, he eventually, you know, I mean, he eventually became a naturalized American citizen, you know, but like that he obviously grew up in the UK and his politics were formed, you know, before he, uh, he moved to the United States. Um, you know, he was, and then two, that he, he just came from an outsider political perspective. You know, he, he'd been a Trotskyist in uh, like the, the 60s and early 70s. Uh, and so part of you know part of a group called the International Socialists in uh, in the UK, which was at Oxford and afterwards, that um, basically saw like what happened like in 1968 when in France there were these uh, this kind of student uprising and workers' general strike that almost brought down the De Gaulle government, and at the same time in Czechoslovakia. There was the the Prague Spring, you know, which was this kind of reformist experiment that was eventually crushed by Soviet tanks, and you know they saw that right, you know, because they were from this kind of revolutionary Marxist perspective, you know, the the IS was was you know extremely critical of both of those systems, 
uh, as you know, their, their slogan was neither Washington nor Moscow, but international socialism as this kind of like rumblings of, of global revolution against both of them. And, you know, Hitchens uh, drifted out of the IS, you know, by, you know, the, the early to, you know, early to mid seventies, partly because of, you know, sort of factional wrangling that's like not even worth trying to reconstruct like what it was about because, you know, far left groups are like that. Uh, but, but I think more substantively because uh, you know, he kind of realized that 1968 wasn't actually the beginning of something. It was at least for the moment, like the end of something, you know, that, 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 that wasn't, you know, that wasn't like, there wasn't going to be this like global, you know, wave of global revolution in the, in the 70s, you know, that that had all got into retreat. Mm -hmm. uh, but even after that, right, and even as like, I think, um, you know, a more moderate kind of socialist in many ways, right? You know, I, I think probably to the extent that he thought about issues like this, probably his conception of how you get from capitalism to some sort of socialist future was probably more incremental and social democratic. Mm -hmm. uh, but in terms of his values, in terms of, in terms of his like long-term goals and, you know, and all that stuff, I mean, he, you know, there, there's a lot that was continuous from that early Trotsky's period, right? You know, and, and, and in fact, in interesting ways, there's a lot that was continuous, even like to the bitter end, you know, from, uh, from, from that, but uh, certainly like the eighties and nineties there was. So uh, as, as such, right? I mean, I think that both as a non-American and, and as a non-liberal, you know, just, just as somebody, somebody who, ha who has, who comes from, you know, who comes from a socialist and in many ways, pretty radical socialist background and can kind of look at that and, and, uh, and be like, oh yeah, I, mean, I don't even, you know, like even sort of like, you know, whatever, like uh, even even like, you know, early seventies George McGovern liberalism is not this, you know, it like doesn't sound that great to me, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and like whatever the hell you want to call this in the nineties, this is just awful, right? You know that they like, so and somebody who wasn't really that invested in the kind of day to day sort of political wars as there existed in the United States and has that very different political perspective could come into this and be like, yeah, why do why do any of you people like this guy? I don't get it. Yeah, right. I mean, do you, I mean, this is going to kind of be a silly question, but I do think it might be important. So do you think that if, let's say, because the things that he outlines, right, especially just in terms of, you know, let's kind of put religion on the shelf for now, but the things that he outlines in terms of like foreign and domestic policy, right? These seem like ideas that most people agree with, at least today, right? So I wonder, is it particularly the socialist label that put people off? Or was it just the fact that like he was just, you know, kind of an iconoclast sort of throwing everything in the bucket and debunking like American uh, sort of, uh, you know, exceptionalism altogether? I guess I wonder if he were to sort of appeal more so to the broader public, what would that have looked like? Because some of these ideas do seem pretty sensible, especially his foreign policy ones. Mm. Yeah, so I think that, um, I mean, I think it's probably worth making a distinction if we're talking about 90s Hitchens right now, which I think what we're talking yeah, about, right uh, mm -hmm. whether um, that, which in some ways I should say on some of the foreign policy stuff is a little bit of a weird transitional period because in, um, because in broad brush, most of the ways that he talks about America's role in the world in the 90s is like pretty much the way he talked about it in the 80s and the 70s. You know, that, right. they, um, that like he wrote a book called Blood Class and Empire about the Anglo-American relationship. And um, in, um, and don't remember where the line is actually in the book, but like certainly in like some of the, the like press he did about it, you know, interviews and stuff afterwards, he has this nice line about how he, uh, 
it's it's really unfortunate. You know, one of the things that's kind of driving him to like think about this, write the book, is this frustration that about what uh, Anglophile means in the U.S. and you know what pro-American you know means in the U.K. That like Anglophile in the U.S. means that you know he said was it you uh, you like. Um, uh, masterpiece theater and country houses and the monarchy and all that shit and uh, and if and pro America in, in the UK means like you know you want our our uh, our lads at MI five to be best friends with the boys at Langley uh, and uh, and it says it'd be much better if it were that Anglophile meant that you wanted the United States to replicate uh, Britain's National Health Service and uh, pro America meant that you wanted the uh, UK to uh, replicate America's Freedom of Information Act, right? You know, so, mm-hmm. so he's still saying a lot of things like this, but at the same time on foreign policy, he's, um, he is, even though I think overall he has this very negative view of America's role in the world, he, you know, the 90s are when he starts to warm up to the idea that sometimes at least locally uh, that, you know, American military power could actually be a force for good that they, uh, that uh, so, and this is actually really interesting in terms of thinking about late hitch and what, you know, certainly from my perspective, what went wrong there, uh, because I think it is really telling, you know, when people want to like sort of attribute like the bad post 9-11 positions that he had just to Islamophobia, that the first war where he starts to warm up to the idea that American military force can't be a force for good in the world is not one where the United States is bombing Muslims. It's actually one where the United States is intervening on behalf of Bosnian Muslims against Serbian Christians uh, mm-hmm. in, uh, in the you know, wars of the former Yugoslavia, you know, first in Bosnia and then Kosovo uh, in, uh, in the 90s. Uh, and so I think uh, this kind of transitional period, Hitchens, um, I think he is starting to get a wider hearing, you know, with some of the public. And uh, I think, but I think who he is alienated specifically is um, people who are even at a place like the nation, which has always occupied slightly ambiguous territory between like mainstream liberalism and something to the left of that. Um, like, you know, Kitchens was a columnist there in the 80s and 90s, Alexander Coburn, uh, you know, who, um, you know, was probably always to Hitchens left in certain respects, although he's also an eccentric guy at his own, his own right with some odd views. But like, um, you know, Coburn was a columnist there, you know, in, uh, in the same, you know, the same time period. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it, it's enough within the space of sort of conventional liberal media that I think being there and being quite as anti-Clinton as he was, uh, you know, like, did alienate him from some people even there and certainly in the kind of broader world of like kind of dc progressive um politics and media you know that that he was uh that he was part of um and then especially i mean i i really wish there had been some way to write about this in the book but i, I just you know there's just no natural you know it's one of like a million things there's just no natural way to work it in uh like that the there's a point where um because you know, one of the things he does talk about, you know, in the in the Clinton book is the way that the the Clinton machine would kind of like go after and like smear these women who you know told the truth about you know their experiences with Bill Clinton, uh, and 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 to sort of like portray them as like crazy sluts and stalkers and you know and all this stuff and uh, and I think he was like really morally offended by that uh, in ways that like I think. 
I think it's interesting actually the way the culture has changed since then because I think like at the I, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like I think post me too, this would all play very differently. But right, very, um, yeah. uh, but so as part of that, right, you know, um, like in uh, the the Ken Starr investigation, um, there, uh, so you know sydney blumenthal had who is a uh somebody who worked for clinton uh who um is um a um uh, is actually a really you know there's there's some interesting family dynamics there because this is also max blumenthal's dad if you know people know who that is but the uh uh but um had i think i might be getting the details of this slightly wrong but i think he he testified that um like basically nobody had ever told him to like go out and defame you know uh you know Monica Lewinsky uh mm-hmm. to uh to to the press and then Hitchens like got mad enough about that he he actually like gave testimony and being like no actually Sydney Sydney Blumenthal gave me this file of like you know of of like uh oppo basically about mm-hmm. Monica Lewinsky being a you know crazy slum to stalker and all this and uh and at the time, I mean, he was like really reviled for that, you know, because like, oh, you know, he, you know, there's this, you know, he just ratted out his friend, right? You know, so it's like, it was, it was sort of the, the way that that was portrayed. And I don't even think this is a hundred percent wrong, you know, is that it's like, this is, this is just this huge act of, you know, disloyalty. And, you know, it's, it's, it's like, it's like naming names to, you know, uh, to HUAC or something like that. It's like, okay, there's an element of that I can see, but like, I think again, post me too all of this would play very, very differently. And I think if all this happened now, I think there'd be a lot more sympathy uh, for the, the position that he was taking there. But like that sort of shows the kind of depths of his hostility to the Clinton administration in the 90s. So I think that even though I think he was kind of throughout the 90s starting to have a bigger presence in in national media, you know, he was ready for, for Vanity Fair and like probably more you know public profile and 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 to actually get more people um listening to what he had to say right you know to go to your question i think very specifically within that kind of world of liberal media like he was um he i mean he was probably like isolated himself a lot more in ways that are probably psychologically relevant to what happened later because you know like it it made it easier for him i think to just kind of part ways entirely with some of these people Yeah, wow. And so just to change gears a little bit, right? Because yeah. uh, the, the part about your book that I think I found the most fascinating are the different versions of communism slash socialism. Yeah. So, you know, it kind of in our community, right? And I know Alan could definitely attest to this. So because we're technically Russian slash Ukrainian. So in our community, everything is socialism, right? So yeah. if you're a Democrat, you're a socialist. If you're a liberal, you're a socialist, right? Everybody's a communist. So it's so interesting that there's so much nuance here, right? That you could be a, yeah. a Trotskyist, you could be a Stalinist, right? You could be a democratic socialist, you know, kind of all of Bernie Sanders. Sanders. But the idea here is that there's so many different versions of it that it's sort of, it's not just, uh, would it, okay, so it's not just unethical. I mean, it is, I guess, you know, if you're being dishonest about it, but it's also a little bit stupid to lump everybody into the same category. So just can you talk a little bit about what kind of socialist Christopher Hitchens was, right? And kind of, uh, can we kind of distinguish that between the different forms available, especially in contrasting Stalinism with Trotskyism? Mm. Yeah. Uh, so I, I try to do this kind of weird thing in the book where because what you're talking about is so important for understanding the background here sort of felt like okay it has to be in the book but like also um 
you know, there's so much else that does, right? So like, I, I sort of try to do like, here's like kind of the history of socialism before pages. And, you know, I guess people could judge for themselves, you know, how, uh, you know, how successful that is or not. But the, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I guess like the way I think about it is, you know, very roughly in, you know, you start with like people like Marx and Ingalls in the 19th century and, um, and you, think about um there's a theory of history here which is actually probably pretty important to understand for like understanding um Hitchens because even though I think there's some weird contradictions in his use of it uh I I think it was at least important to his understanding of what he thought right you know that that he he still subscribed to sort of some form of it in some watered down way you know to to the bitter end uh, which roughly says that what really kind of drives forward historical development is um, the development of the productive forces of a society, just meaning like the, like, um, you know, the capacity of a society to produce stuff, right? And that that's going to be intimately related to what the uh, relations of production are, meaning, uh, you know, whether you have capitalism or feudalism or socialism or or what right like 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 how uh, how different class you know like are there different classes how are they related to each other so i think broadly speaking if you think about like the earliest human societies that you could actually call societies um you're talking about like hunter-gatherer tribes stuff like that and those are uh those are going to be sort of um communist by default because uh it they have to be super duper egalitarian because like you just don't have enough food to go around for some people to be like aristocrats who are like you know living without working right you know so uh yeah they'd be killed off right yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. if that ever and that's and just a quick aside that's actually yeah. what happened in hunter-gatherer society so if you had like greedy you know greedy kind of hunters or whatever right the tribe would kind of get together and just like kill them all off right <laughs> right yeah. right uh, so, so then you have the agricultural revolution and, you know, people start to settle agriculture and, uh, and, and livestock and all that stuff. And that creates at least the possibility of class society now. Uh, and very broadly speaking, I mean, a lot of this is sort of going by, um, it's a book, uh, that, that I just finished teaching a class on that I know, uh, was, was very important, uh, to, uh, to, to Hitchens. He mentions it a few places, Karl Marx's theory of history of defense by Gia Cohen and sort of the way that Cohen periodizes it there, right? You have those sort of early, like primitive communism we were talking about, you have pre-capitalist class societies, you know, slavery, feudalism, whatever, uh, where basically the, you know, you can have a ruling class now, right? It's, you know, there, there is enough to go around for that, but also like the only way to make that work uh, given the level of development of the productive forces is to buy like pretty crude coercion, right? Mm. You know, that, that uh, you know, you're a feudal peasant, right? You know, that there's um, that like whatever, you know, if, I mean, it works slightly different ways, different versions of feudalism, whether you have to spend a certain number of weeks a year tilling the Lord's fields instead of yours, or whether you're just tilling one field, but like you have to give up some of your crops, you know, to, to the Lord or whatever. But like, you know, there's like a guy with a sword ultimately, who's who's enforcing this like in a very direct crude way uh and then you know you get to the point where um you have uh, you know the industrial revolution and and the rise of of capitalism 
you have uh, the the pot, you know, it's both no longer sort of convenient for the further development of these productive forces that people are tied to the land the way that feudal serfs are, um, because what you really need for that system is a very mobile um, laboring class that can, you know, that, that, that can just sort of move to where the work is and, and have, uh, and can enter into a contract with, uh, with any boss, uh, an employment contract. So Marx has this great phrase about how workers under capitalism have to be doubly free, by which he means both legally free to, to sort of sign an employment contract with whoever, uh, but also uh, free from any way of supporting themselves without signing an employment contract with a boss. Um, so in other words, that even though it's not a guy with a sword, it's just like, you know, the, the kind of blind force of economic compulsion, you know, still have no realistic choice except to submit themselves to uh, a ruling class because, you know, you, you have to, you know, I mean, in these sort of early factories that, you know, like, like William Blake was writing about in his poem, Jerusalem, when he's got that phrase about the dark satanic mills, you know, that, uh, that where people are going to work for like 16 hours a day or something. And then there's like incredibly dirty, noisy, dangerous environments, right? Nobody's going to do that if they have an alternate means of supporting themselves, right? You know, right. you're only going to mm -hmm. do that if you have no realistic choice except to do that or to starve. And, um, and then the Marxist analysis would be there's, you know, of course, over the course of the development of capitalism due to the you know, growth and development of trade unions and worker struggles and labor laws and, you know, welfare states starting to form and et cetera, right? Some of the rough edges that are softened over time and, you know, goes down from like 16 hours to 12 hours to eight hours, right? You know, but the, uh, the and, you know, and, and it's, you know, and the, the alternative maybe isn't quite as rough as starvation, but still, you know, like long-term, like you got to have a job or you're not going to survive. Uh, and, uh, and so it's still the case that for half of your waking hours, most days of the week, uh, you have to sell, uh, you know, you have to essentially sell eight, you know, eight out of your 16 hours of being awake a day to a, you know, unelected figure who's going to give you orders. Uh, and so the, the claim that, uh, that Marxist theory is going to make is that as the system develops, you know, it's, it's going to be very like cruel in many ways in human terms, but it is going to, it is going to like really build up the industrial machinery of society. And it's going to build it up to the point where it makes it possible that you could have egalitarianism again, but like not an egalitarian distribution of scarcity, like in those sort of early hunter gatherer, you know, primitive communist societies. But, um, you know, a, an egalitarian distribution of, of material abundance, you know, that, that, that you could have a society where uh, workers are collectively and democratically, you know, controlling uh, the, uh, the forces of production. And so maybe even like, because, you know, if workers are controlling, you know, the factories and the farms and all this stuff, when, you know, new labor saving technology is developed, um, instead of what happens under capitalism, that, that half that, um, that it's, um that you know maybe everybody has to work just as hard but you know but but like more stuff is being produced so therefore there's more profit or you know everybody who everybody who's still there has to work just as hard but like half the people get laid off and you know uh, uh because you can do it you know with twice little then you know workers could collectively and democratically decide okay what's our priority here you know do we you know we could do this we could just keep everybody have the same standard of living you have to just work fewer hours 
Uh, and so that that's kind of the the promise of of socialism or communism is you know Marx and Engels you know use those terms mostly and synonymously although there's also tradition of using communism to mean like the sort of more advanced you know kind of stage of a socialist society uh, as it could develop in the future and so this is more or less what everybody thinks and by the way one of the consequences of this theory is that where socialist revolution has to have as a precondition the development of like really advanced industrial capitalism um but in the early 20th century there actually is a socialist revolution but it happens in one of the least developed capitalist countries in the world in russia uh mm. and um which in fact is sort of barely a capitalist society at all is actually kind of still a weird sort of weird mixture of capitalism and something sort of residually feudal, you know, when, right. when that uh, revolution happens in 1917. And so the original understanding of Lenin and Trotsky as the leaders of that revolution, which was like a very orthodox Marxist understanding was that, well, okay, the only way we're gonna be able to have socialism in Russia is if the revolution spreads to Western Europe and crucially to Germany. And like, so there's this sort of advanced mm. industrial base and it's sort of within this, this world you know, system that will have this this advanced industrial base built up, uh, because obviously we can't have it in one backward, largely agrarian, you know, uh, society. Uh, but then, uh, and people's assumption also at the time was that, you know, either that was going to happen or it would just be crushed anyway. So, you know, so that it would sort of be a non-issue. But then what happens is exactly what nobody expected, which is the Bolsheviks win the civil war and they hold on to power in Russia, but it also doesn't spread outside of you know the former russian empire um at this point right i mean like it starts to at different points in the late teens and early 20s but all of that is crushed and uh you know and this sort of revolutionary outburst that happened in germany and hungary and places like that and ultimately you know the soviet union um is still under the control of the socialist uh you know, revolutionary party, but um, but it's isolated within that. And so you have this factional struggle within the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in the in the 20s uh, that goes in uh, in a few different directions. Uh, and uh, there's so Trotsky's perspective um, is that he thinks that you know you should have this renewed emphasis on world revolution and like spreading the revolution elsewhere and and that's uh, and you know linked to that you know that, that you need to be you know try to build up the industrial base in, in russia and also that you know that he he thinks that sort of workers democracy which was supposed to be the whole point you know has has, has really has started to to really fade away quite a bit you know by the 1920s right you know that, that there's uh when the revolution happens originally there's, there's quite a lot of that, right? You know, in at least the sort of islands of industrial capitalism that existed in the former Russian empire, you have, you know, workers councils and factory committees and all this stuff. And over the course of the, you know, this like extremely bloody and gruesome civil war, I mean, most of that gets lost in the way that this happens in civil wars, right? You know, that, that uh, generally speaking, any society, however democratic it is to start with, however, you know, uh, it'll become way less so by the end of a civil war uh, as a general rule, that if you're very lucky, it'll be like the United States where it sort of comes back later, you know, but like, uh, but um, it wasn't really coming back very much in Russia. So, so this is the, the Trotsky's perspective. Uh, and um, 
then you get people like Stalin and Bukharin who ultimately end up falling out with each other, but you know, who, who think that uh, actually you can have like socialism within a single country and, and, and even within a single sort of very backward country, uh, which, which is you know, a pretty striking revision of classical Marxist ideas. Uh, and, but then you have this further division between those two factions ultimately, right? Because uh, so Trotsky's group is called the left opposition. Uh, Bukharin's faction, probably not by themselves, but is, is referred to by other people as the right opposition. Uh, and because what Bukharin thinks, which is more or less what Lenin thought at the very end, is that um, basically if you were going to do socialism in one country, what you'd have to do is a sort of very, at, at the very least for a prolonged transitional period, you'd have to have this like pretty gentle kind of market socialism where you had, uh, you know, because like most people were still going to be small holding peasants and uh, you didn't want to alienate, you know, like, uh, the revolution relied on the alliance between those people in the industrial working class. So the way to sort of bring socialism to the countryside was sort of by very gradually incentivizing the peasants to like pool together into rural cooperatives and stuff like that. Um, and ultimately what where Stalin ends up going uh, after defeating his various factional enemies is um, consolidating, you know, making what was already becoming disturbingly authoritarian by by the 20s like much much more authoritarian mm -hmm. and closely linked to this uh doing um trying to you know like what socialism in one country ultimately ended up meaning for stalin was was that you you'd have you'd sort of solve this problem about you know how you're supposed to have this advanced industrial base by just sort of doing this like rapid fire industrialization within the soviet union where you like forced peasants onto, you know, like sort of drove them by force onto these collective farms. And you had, um, and, and you, you had this kind of breakneck speed of industrial development that involved, you know, like really making workers, you know, like work, you know, um, like, you know, fulfill these crazy quotas and stuff like that. And of course you can't do any of that without becoming pretty much what the Soviet Union became by the 30s, you know, that, they, that there's no way realistically, you know, because what you're doing is essentially you're doing what, like uh, Tony Cliff, uh, who is the founder of the, of the uh, Trotsky's group in Britain that Christopher Hitchens was part of in the 60s and 70s, uh, has a book called um, State Capitalism in Russia, or I think, I think the original edition is called The Class Nature of Stalinist Russia, where he, he points out that essentially what was happening in Russia in the 30s was what happened in Great Britain over the course of like, you know, a couple hundred years uh, of enclosures of like common peasant land to, you know, sort of force, force, you know, peasants off their land. And so people ended up having no choice except to work in these awful factories, et cetera, et cetera, which was like a pretty brutal process, even in Britain, right? I mean, that, that, that was like a, a really violent process even there, but it was like, you know, a hundred times more violent in the Soviet Union because they were, they were, you know, because they were like cramming it all into like one five-year plan, basically. Right. Uh, and so, um, so different, Trotsky himself didn't have quite as radical a rejection of the, of what the Soviet Union was at this point as, as that, right? I mean, to the end of his, his life, Trotsky is assassinated in 1940. Trotsky thinks that the Soviet Union is, you know, he, he uses the phrase degenerated worker state, which means that like it's gotten really bad, right? It's degenerated. 
you know, it has to be fixed. Maybe it even requires some sort of revolution to fix it, but there's some sort of salvageable socialist core there. Whereas, but then like within the Trotskyist movement afterwards, like Tony Cliff writes his book in 1948, he has a much more radical analysis of it where he basically says, there's nothing socialist about what the USSR is at this point. It's just this like weird mutant form of capitalism where, 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 where like the state is kind of one big corporation and, and, and it's, it's really not fundamentally different from capitalism, but that's the, that's the tradition that, uh, so, so when sort of Christopher Hitchens becomes a Marxist in the 1960s, that's the kind of Marxism that he's, that he's coming into. Right. So, so he has, uh, so, so he's always, um, you know, in, so even after he leaves the IS, right, even in the uh, even in in the eighties, right, I mean he's he's very he's very much a pox on both their houses guy about the Cold War, you know that they uh, so so he's he's very supportive of um, you know dissidents, especially especially ones who are you know considered themselves to be some kind of socialist and in, uh, in the the Soviet bloc, you know, like he's supportive of stuff like you know Solidarność, you know the uh, the 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 workers' movement, you know that was those crushed uh, in uh, in Poland, you know in the eighties, uh, and you know in nineteen eighty nine when those those regimes start to to crumble, you know he's you know he's all for it, right? You know, but um, but then um, but then I think I think that even though he was super duper anti-Stalinist, I still think that like he had this political perspective that was shaped by the cold war, even though he was like against both sides of it. And then like, in terms of understanding then what happens to him in the, in the nineties and two thousands, I think that's where all of this background becomes relevant because, because I think as the world starts to change after the cold war, I think there's a certain way in which he's not sure what to make of that. And like, as he's kind of trying to find his bearings, you know, in that new world, that's kind of when his politics start to shift. Right. And I mean, it sort of seems like, you know, just for the sake of, I guess, humanity or for his love of humanity, he's a contrarian, right? Where we yeah. think about the, right, we think about like these two forces and, you know, it's like, uh, if you kind of look at the Rocky movies and whatnot and sort of just yeah. pop culture, yeah, what, what pop culture were presu- was yeah. producing at the time, right? It's like, you have to pick like these two forces and then here comes Hitchens and he says, no, they all are really terrible, right? So there's a sort of underlying love of humanity that neither government really possesses. And so, right, when I kind of mentioned before that as a Russian, right, you kind of think everything is like, or everything, you know, that's anti capitalist is sort of right. you know, communist and Stalinist, yep. right? It's like when we argue with our family members, we try to kind of tell them like how unfair that is because, you know, when we kind of get into these debates about like Medicare for all and, uh, you know, just um, sort of like what we want in terms of like as a society, you know, have like some provision of like basic goods or whatever, right? You know, even jobs potentially. Mm-hmm. The idea there is like, well, you know, uh, dictatorships want to sort of take money away from, you know, the rich or, you know, the, the working class or whatever, you know, they don't. Um, so it's like they want to take away uh, kind of um, they sort of want to take away money from the people who actually work and they want to give it to the people who don't. And so I think their understanding is that, you know, the kind of the way the Russian state was built was that like they didn't really uh, they didn't appreciate the the kind of the real workers there. So the so, sort of like um so it's like they didn't appreciate the kind of workers there. And what they did was they sort of took from them, which is what like you guys kind of want to do here with, you know, the sort of Bernie Sanders regime wants right. to do. They just want to kind of take from the working class. And then but going into Christopher Hitchens, right, he's sort of trying to defend as best as he can the working class. And he's kind of telling you that there's been a ruse pulled over you, right, by these two forms, these two different factions, that the Stalinists, right, are telling you that, yeah, you know, we're for the working class, obviously, even though we aren't, we want to actually suppress them, right, violently. And then you have the capitalist regimes that say, no, 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 
I'm sorry, it's, you have the capitalist regimes who suppress the working class in a kind of a, in a bit of a sort of flowery way. And it's a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more subtle. But the idea is that like, yeah, you know, it's like the government allows you to go into the market and allows you to compete for work. But at the end of the day, the dictatorship is different, right? It's sort of, it's more corporate. Whereas again, as you go into the Stalinist regime, it's sort of, it's it's kind of more, uh, it's, uh, what's the word? It's, um, it's more sort of aggressively, it's more aggressive in terms of like the actual like regime, mm. in terms of the actual government. So it's like when we think about what we want to actually, you know, sort of tell the world, right? This is why I love early Hitchens, because you can point to these arguments. And I really want to get into some of these debates mm -hmm. that he had, especially, you know, you know, communism versus social, I mean, capitalism versus socialism. And so you go into some of these debates and what Hitchens has to say, and you're like, look, you know, you kind of can present it and you could say, don't you want some of these things too? Don't you want like the basic kind of versions of, uh, of like, a let's say a welfare state to be yeah. to support, right, to support all of us? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that, um, right. So, I mean, I think now um, what we, um, you know, because I think with the Cold War ended, uh, I think for a long time, and I mean, this is actually really relevant to, to the Hitchin story because, um, you know, I, I think to understand how his politics started to change in the 90s because these sorts of big debates about capitalism and socialism that like seem very alive and in the 1980s after the collapse of the soviet bloc you know the, the triumph of, of the west of the cold war um i think till a lot of people the most people you know started to seem very irrelevant you know for a uh, for for a long time uh in the in the 90s because it sort of seemed like you know if you think back to even stuff like I don't know. Um, there's this famous thing in the uh, uh, in the late '50s. Uh, there's this famous uh, debate that uh, kitchen table debate that uh, Richard Nixon and Nikita Khrushchev had at this uh, this like exposition in Moscow where they were arguing about you know capitalism and communism and you know and, and, and which system is sort of going to vie for the future of humanity and like you you think that's a kind of debate that seemed just sort of decisively settled to most people, you know, mm -hmm. at, at the beginning of the 90s, that, um, that, you know, some sort of liberal capitalism had won, and all there is to do at that point is, is to kind of sort out the details. Mm -hmm. uh, like Francis Fukuyama, and to be fair, I think he's somebody, you know, a lot more people know the title of his book than have read the book, and this might be a little unfair to him, Right, you know, but like uh, he he writes this book in the nineties called "The End of History," and mm. and that's that's kind of um, the way that the title of that book sort of resonates with this atmosphere in this era is that it's like yeah, I mean, it's not stuff isn't going to keep happening, but it's it, it's that uh, these sorts of like big debates about how to organize a society are just kind of done, you know, mm. that they that like one side won and the other side lost, and that's that. And so I think that like Hitchens, even somebody like Hitchens, even though look, I mean, the kind of socialism or quote unquote socialism that, you know, that lost wasn't, wasn't the kind he wanted anyway, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but despite that, I think that that atmosphere that it's like over and capitalism won and, 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 you know, when the Cold War is still going on, at least if there are two big competing options, even if your own preference is for a third option, Right. Like it's, it still seems like a debate about stuff like that is very alive in ways that, um, that it, it doesn't feel like 
in the 1990s. Uh, and so I think over the course of the 90s, Hitchens, you know, Hitchens like finds it harder and harder to like kind of keep the faith that this is like a live historical possibility, you know, and, and um, by the time in 2001, before 9-11, you know, but like he, I mean, it comes out like a month after 9-11. So like at the very least, I'm not sure about the publishing schedule, but it must've been written at the very least several months before that, probably more like a year before that. Uh, in his book, Letters to a Young Contrarian, you know, he just kind of says not that he, you know, even though in some ways he's still writing very affectionately about the socialist tradition and, you know, some of the underlying values, like he, he sort of, he kind of gives up in that book. He's like, look, this is just not happening, right? You know, it's, it's, it, the historical moment is over. And in his memoir, uh, Hitch 22, there are a few passages in there where he kind of reflects on this uh, and, uh, it's funny, actually, there's a review of my book in, in Quillette where like the guy got, you know, it's like, oh, these aren't the, you know, Ben said in the book, these are the only passages where he reflects on it, but he says this and that and the other thing. It's like, okay, just, you know, what, what do you think I mean by this, right? Like he, he has a, like, it's not like that's the only time he ever says anything about it, right? You know, but like the, these are the sort of moments where he's sort of taking a step back to like try to explain why, you know, he, he, uh, he made this shift. And in that he says um, that, you know, there's a, he thinks in retrospect, there's a point where like he had kind of given up on it, like, like, you know, deep down, but he wasn't really willing to admit that to anybody else or even himself probably, you know, even himself. Right. But he thinks a lot of that was just kind of stubbornness or his ego. You know, it was like every time he'd go on, you know, he, there's this very funny passage where he says every time he'd go on C-SPAN, you know, Brian Lamb would ask him in a really condescending way if he's still a socialist. And, you know, he didn't want to give him the satisfaction to say no, you know, right. <laughs> that, uh, you know, so it's like, I think it really starts to wear down on him. And I mean, going back to what you were saying just now, I mean, I think that, like, what's changed since then, I think, is that there has been this kind of massive dissatisfaction with the kind of, the kind of capitalism that was triumphant in the 90s. Uh, and that we've had since then, that they have that like, you know, at least in the, you know, at least in the 90s, a lot of really bad stuff was happening to a lot of people. But like, you know, at least it was all happening in the context of this big, you know, economic boom, you know, for, for much of the decade. And as um, and given everything that's happened since then, I mean, especially, I think, you know, given uh, the meltdown of the world economy in 2008, you know, that then that, that I think. Uh, you started to get a lot more dissatisfaction with the economic status quo that like started to manifest itself in like, was it 2011, you know, the Occupy Wall Street, uh, and then, uh, and then in a, in a slightly different form in the, in the coming years, like in the UK, you get Jeremy Corbyn uh, as, as this sort of old line representative of, uh, of, of the sort of, uh, you know, kind of the far left within the Labour Party, you know, spectrum, uh, who's, uh, who comes back and is actually the leader of the party for several years in the United States. You have the Bernie Sanders uh, phenomenon started in 2015, which really took off in a crazy way that I think nobody, least of all Bernie himself, anticipated. You know, like, like if you go back and watch the footage of the press conference in 2015, where he announces that he's ready for president, mm -hmm. it's like, it's like just him, right? Like, I, I don't even, like, there's no he's like going out like at his lunch break or something for the Senate. And he's got this like little folded up sheet of paper in his pocket with his speech <laughs> on it. 
that he takes out. Like, I'm not going to have a lot of time to answer questions, you know, <laughs> like, uh, and they're like Ted reporters there or something, right? You know? <laughs> so, you know, he definitely thought he was doing this kind of symbolic gesture right, of, right. Of, of frustration, you know, with the neoliberal status quo when he was running, but then it really caught on. And I think that you have, um, you know, you have stuff like, you know, um, you have stuff like the Democratic Socialists of America has gotten to be a much bigger deal than it was, you know, sort of in 2015, just kind of a glorified mailing list of a few hundred people. Right. And now there's, I don't even know, 100,000, you know, a couple hundred thousand people. Most of them are, you know, a lot more of them are much more active. And you have like a few members of Congress, you know, who, who are at least somewhat aligned with it, whatever. Uh, you have, you know, Jacobin, which, you know, not to inflate our importance in the world, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's still, um, you know, it's still a very minor, you know, magazine in the greater scheme of things, but like, you know, it, it's gigantic compared to any socialist magazine that existed, you know, like, right. you know, 12 years ago, right? You know, that they, uh, uh, so I think what you have now, though, is this sort of combination of a couple of things you were talking about, like having some kind of welfare state. And I think that that's, so there's like, I think when people talk about socialism, you know, they mean maybe two different things. One of them is um, what I would think of a social democracy, which mm -hmm. is uh, the idea that you should have, um, you know, not just a welfare state, but like a particular kind of welfare state that you should have like not uh, like means tested programs where there's some like bureaucrats scrutinizing whether you're quite poor and miserable enough to qualify, you know, for, for some kind of help, but you should have this like broad sweeping universal programs that like everybody gets just for being a person, you know, that, you know, that, that you get, you know, everybody can have healthcare, you know, nobody has to pay tuition to go to college, you know, things like that. Right. Uh, and, and that's, you know, which is often things that have been accomplished and especially like Scandinavian countries by socialist parties, you know, they've been elected to power, often allied to strong labor unions. And, and that's all good stuff. And I mean, that's all the stuff that I think could actually be achieved anytime soon, right? You know, and, and, and it's incredibly important. Um, but then you've got this sort of more, much more nebulous idea all right, guys, we're back from some technical difficulties, and we're going to continue where we left off. <laughs> all right. Yeah, I, I mean, I think all I think all I was saying when we cut off is just that I think that when people now use this word socialism, I think because there's been like quite so much of a triumph of, of you know, free market capitalism in decades leading up to this. I think that it means two things. One of the, like most of the time, it just kind of means social democracy, you know, which, which, which is what like socialist parties would have traditionally called like the minimum program, you know, the, the sort of universal healthcare and, you know, all that stuff. Right. Uh, and, but then I think some people, at least, I think a lot of people, when they, they use that, that term, I mean, they are kind of gesturing in a more sort of systemic dissatisfaction with, uh, with the way that capitalism works. Although I also think that a lot of people are, are unsure about what a, what a different, um, what like a, a sort of fundamentally different kind of economic system might look like that, you know, didn't sort of 
didn't just replicate, you know, like like all of the the problems of um, you know like of the socialist experiments of the of the twentieth century, uh, mm. which I'll I'll just you know. I mean, not that there's anything to plug. It's not going to exist for at least a year. But like that, that is the uh, that is the the book I'm working on right now with uh, uh, Bhaskar Sankara, who's the uh, editor of Jacobin, and Mike Mike Beggs, who's a uh, economics professor. Um, is is kind of a book about what like a sort of long term socialist uh, vision of society that would be better would look like. So you know, Bhaskar's a Jay Z fan, so he wants to call it the Blueprint. Mm. <laughs> that's awesome that's so cool. and then so kind of circling back to where we began right if you had yeah. to i mean this is obviously kind of a, a little bit of a creative sort of uh, i guess experiment or way of thinking about things where do you think hitch would have been at this i guess at this kind of juncture in, in the world or in life or whatever yeah it's really hard to say so i think that but i think there's like a range of possibilities mm-hmm. so and, and i think like that's not totally uninformative because i think there are things that we can rule out because they're outside of the range like um so, because where he ultimately, of course, ends up going uh, is that, you know, he has these horrible post 9-11 foreign policy positions uh, that, you know, he ends up, you know, having kind of given up on the idea that there's going to be this, this wave of sort of socialist transformations from below, which would, um, which, you know, presumably would have um, you know, all these like sort of tin pot despotisms like Saddam Hussein's Iraq, you know, would, would have been swept into the dustbin of history, you know, mm-hmm. Marxist language by that, right? Having given up on that, you know, he's, he's willing to sort of have the 82nd Airborne Division do at least a democratic transformation of these societies from above, uh, which I think is, you know, we've seen as a disaster, uh, like over the course of the last 20 years. I mean, you know, they think about the last year, the, uh, the end of the war in Afghanistan, that's the, uh, the, the long, bloody 20-year transition from the Taliban to the Taliban. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it, it's, uh, I, I think the idea that it even could happen that way, I think is, it just, is just a tragic mistake. Um, and, you know, I mean, a crime, you know, in terms of people committing it, but in terms of people who, who thought it could happen that way, a tragic mistake. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, he did all that and he was uh and he was a lot of his focus in the last years of his life was in a you know for somebody who's as hyper political as Hitchens in so sort of strange sort of way it was less about politics than about metaphysics he'd be doing these debates about religion and atheism um so where would he have politically landed if he'd lived longer well i think the more you know if you imagine him beating the cancer in 2011 i think the more years you're imagining him living, of course, the harder it is to answer that question because, mm-hmm. like, the world has changed in so many ways since then, right? You know, you end mm-hmm. up like doing these like questions, like I don't know what would uh, you know, like what would what would Christopher Hitchens have, you know have thought about COVID? It's like, but I think what's a little bit easier is. Uh, to not take us all the way to 2022, but to but to like do like five years after he died, like 2016, right. um, which is already a time when politics have really realigned in some significant ways that uh, that they've kind of stayed realigned since then. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can really see like because like all of his like new atheist buddies in the late 2000s. Uh, Sam Harris, Richard Dawkins, and, you know, like these are all people who've like gone in various directions because like the 
sort of culture war moment within which when new atheism made sense is sort of gone now and you know their people are divided about different issues and so they've they've gone you know they've gone different ways but like if you imagine christopher hitchens and like the 2016 election what are the range of possibilities well i think it is a little bit tricky especially if you're thinking about the general election because he hated the clinton so much that um would he have been able to like suck it up and, and vote for Hillary in 2016, maybe not, right? But the one thing I am 100% morally certain of is that there's no version of Hitchens that would have ever been pro-Trump. And, um, and I think there's a lot of evidence of that, not just in like the few statements that he actually made about Donald Trump, which are pretty scattered, right? You know, because obviously he wasn't a big you know, figure in the same way, right? You know, so like there's a C-SPAN thing where he's... Um, you know, Brian Lamb probably asks him what he, what he thinks about Donald Trump. And he says, as far as I can tell, the only impressive thing about that bat is that he found a way to cover 90% of his skull with 10% of his hair. And mm-hmm. there's, a, uh, there's another one where he, um, in 2000, when Trump, was, uh, when Trump was a candidate for the Reform Party nomination, which is bizarre to think about, this guy who later became president of the United States, um, you know, lost to, you know, Pat Buchanan. Uh, the, uh, but uh, in, in a nation column about that race for the Reform Party nomination, Hitchens refers to Trump as a nutball narcissistic tycoon. Uh, so like, so it's not, but I think the personal dislike for Trump is the least of it. I think that like the bigger thing is that that sort of like America first, you know, xenophobic, you know, at least rhetorically isolationist nationalism is just in many, many ways for, you know, I think any stage of Christopher Hitchens would have hated that. Uh, and if you look at stuff like what he wrote in 2009, a couple of years before he died, uh, when Glenn Beck had the, did this uh, rally in Washington, D.C. Uh, against Obama, uh, Hitchens wrote about it. And uh, he referred to the rally as the water world of white self-pity. Uh, this, uh, you know, he, he had... Um, he, you know, I mean, he had some, certainly his racial politics. I mean, he was, uh, even after he, you know, went wrong from my perspective on foreign policy uh, in 2001, after that happened, he did a debate where he was arguing in favor of reparations. And he later has an essay about, you know, about that, right? So I, th- I think it's, I don't think we can imagine a version of, of Hitchens that's pro-Trump. So given that, what are the range of possibilities? Um, I think that... The best one, obviously the one that I would like to believe in, is that uh, in 2015, 2016, with the rise of the Bernie phenomenon, that like rekindles some of his old yeah. leftist like, economic views and, and that he, he supports it because of that. Now, I think it would have been complicated because I think it would have been really psychologically difficult for him to walk back some of the foreign policy stuff. I mean, who knows as the, as some of those wars dragged on year after year after year, right? right. You know, like, like it might've been really hard to, you know, I mean, it might be hard to predict exactly, you know, maybe, maybe something, you know, he would have like admitted, you know, he admitted he was wrong about stuff like that. But I, I just have a really hard time imagining just because that was such a bitter break between right. him and so many of his old friends and comrades that he would like, and, and the fact that I mean, this was whatever else is true. I mean, like, I, I, I love so much of the guy's writing, but I mean, like, you know, he did have like an ego the size of a planet, you know, like that, like I have a really hard time imagining him just coming out and saying like, oh, you guys were all right and I was wrong, right? You know, that's, uh, that, that's <laughs> tricky. So, so I think it would have been complicated by some of the foreign policy stuff, but I think it is, a ima- I think I can imagine him 
uh, supporting Bernie in in 2016. Like like I think Jeremy Corbyn, I think it'd be much harder to imagine because some of the foreign policy stuff. But the uh, but also I think by that point, you know, he's like already by the time he died, he was much more focused on America than British politics. And I think Bernie Sanders, I I, I think that is within the realm of what's imaginable that he could have been a a Bernie supporter in 2016, especially because he did hate Hillary Clinton so much. I mean, yeah. one of the first, first things I say at the beginning of the book is that like if the Bernie campaign had had a little bit more of a killer instinct, they would have like bought up in mass and sold at rallies, you know, that, that uh, no one left to lie to. Uh, but um, the, uh, but also because, uh, also because there's this one really specific moment in the Democratic primaries in 2016 that I have a hard time imagining Hitchens not responding to, which is, that in one of those debates, Hillary Clinton, you know, was talking about how, you know, like uh, Henry Kissinger was this like good friend and trusted advisor, and you know, Bernie Sanders kind of made this point of you know, I'm very proud to say Henry Kissinger is not my friend, right? right. You know, <laughs> and and like whatever else is true, I have a hard time imagining like Hitchens and whatever like DC bar he was watching that debate, you know, like not at least having like some warm thoughts about Bernie and at least writing a column about it. Like I think at the at the very least that would have happened. Maybe he would have even been a Bernie supporter in 2016. And again, I think it's possible that the revival of all that would have rekindled some of his economic leftist views. I think that the worst version of Hitchens that I could realistically imagine. Uh, again, it wouldn't be like a Trumpist or anything like that. And I don't think he even would have like really ended up in the, um, you know, so-called IDW, right? Intellectual dark web with, you know, people like Jordan Peterson and, uh, and you know, Ben Shapiro, right? I, I don't think he even would have ended up there for various reasons we could talk about, right? But I think the worst version of him I can imagine would be that like basically somebody who uh, was like very, very anti-Trump in a way I'd find really annoying in that sort of like resistance liberal kind of way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. I love that so much. All right, Alan, final questions for Ben before we wrap up? Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, uh, where could we find you? Yeah, so uh, the easiest thing to do is to go to benburgess.com, uh, B-U-R-G-I-S, uh, and you can find links to just about everything there. It's Ben Burgess on Twitter. Um, and uh the show uh that that i um uh, that i that co-host that i host uh is um give them an argument uh you know which you could find at youtube and and all the standard podcast places but again the show the jacobin column and uh and um and you know the social media stuff and everything else you know you can find it all at that website benburgess.com Excellent. Awesome. And Ben, so again, thank you so much for coming on. And just to our audience, man, I really, really want to strongly stress this is one of the best books that I've read in the past couple of years. So you get everything from it. Not only do you get this history of this incredible man, but you get just the intellectual history of the past probably 20, 30, 40, 50, whatever years, right? Philosophy, politics, history, you name it. So guys, you know, please get the book. Ben, again, thank you so much for coming down, man. This was thank great. You. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Absolutely, man. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Right. Talk soon. Bye. All right. That was awesome. So guys, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at seize the moment podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and at seize underscore podcast on Twitter, like subscribe, hit the bell. Hit the bell. <laughs> and thank you so much for watching. See you next time.